Well, good morning and uh, welcome. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, welcome to the Leawood campus of Christ Community. We're glad you're here and uh, kids especially, we're really glad you're here. Uh, it's a fun day uh, for all of us at Christ Community and I see some students back from college and uh, it's just, I hope you feel very welcome here if you are from out of town or uh, a regular at Christ Community. So let me again, on behalf of our whole team uh, and our Christ Community family, give you a warm welcome on this beautiful day. Uh, researchers for the Museum of Science and Industry did an interesting study. The BBC reported it not too long ago. Can you imagine? They did a study of 12,000 people who listened to over 1,000 songs over 40 decades. And the goal of the research was to determine what is the most recognizable song in the world. Um, what do you think they found? Uh, you might have a lot of ideas. When I first uh, came upon this article, I thought it's got to be Michael Jackson's Beat It. You know, I thought that's got to be it. Or Elvis Presley's It's Now or Never. That's a pretty good one in my mind. Or the Beatles, my absolute favorite, Can't Buy Me Love. Or maybe you're more sentimental in this Advent season. It was Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Or maybe if you're really spiritual, you said Amazing Grapes. But the answer the researchers got stunned me. And uh, the number one song, you ready for this? At least by these 12,000 people, I don't know where they got them, is Wannabe by the Spice Girls. <laughs> now, if you're a Spice Girls fan, I, I'm not trying to upset you this morning. I, I had to look up this song, the lyrics. <laughs> give me grace. Let me give you a picture of what these lyrics are like. I was pretty surprised at their profundity. Here's how it goes. Yo, I'll tell you what I want, what I really want, want. <laughs> so tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I want to, want to, want to, want to, really, really want to zigzag ha. <laughs> Would someone interpret that for me? My point is, regardless of what lyrics are when they're put to music, they have a way of sticking in our brains, don't they? Like nothing else. You've had that experience, an old song you haven't heard forever, and all of a sudden you hear it, and you get all the words just like that. <laughs> or a song gets stuck in your head, and you play it over and over again. I was at Starbucks with a friend of mine not too long ago, and I'm a real fan of Adele. And I heard this Adele song that I love. And I have to tell you, I played it over and over in my mind for at least a week. I couldn't get it out of there. See, songs move us in powerful ways. And I think during the Advent season and Christmas season, this is a heightened sort of amplification in our hearts. The holiday season fills the air with Christmas songs. And the question I have is what song, what Christmas songs are going to get stuck in your head this Christmas? More importantly, will they inspire you or will they sadden you? Will they foster hopefulness or cynicism? Will they sustain you or will they suffocate your soul? It seems to me there is a really common truth right in front of our eyes. And that is this, that the songs that stick in our heads profoundly shape our hearts. And today we are beginning our Advent message series that our teaching team is very excited about. And we've entitled this series, as you can tell, Songs That Sustain Us. And during this Advent season, we're going to explore lyrics of songs. 
yes, songs, that God's covenant people sang thousands of years ago as they gathered together for corporate worship. And there were songs that stuck in their heads and brought them in the midst of the most dire moments, the most buoyant hope, tranquil peace, unconditional love, and exuberant joy to their hearts. So this is where we're going in our Advent series. And I'd like to pray before this morning's message. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, during this Advent season of expectation, we not only look back at the Bethlehem manger, we look at the cross, we look at the empty tomb, and we long for your return. And in this parentheses of your time, we ask that whatever our life circumstance is, whatever the doubts that haunt us, the loneliness that haunts us, wherever we are, that you would breathe hope into our souls. So open God's word to us, wherever we are in our spiritual life, and may it transform us. And we pray this morning particularly that you would put our hope in the right place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a long time, and don't calculate the number of years. It's been a long time since I was a senior in high school. But there's one thing I remember in my senior year, and that is an entry by a girl named Marie in my high school yearbook. The entry was this, happiness is found when you have someone to love, something to do, and something to hope for. Now, these well-chosen words contain a great deal of wisdom because our relationships and our work matter in this matter of happiness, don't they? What this entry into my yearbook said is that hopefulness also matters when it comes to happiness. Hopefulness and happiness to me are like hand and glove. They fit together. But what do we mean by hope and hopefulness? Hope is a word we often use, isn't it? We say things like, I hope you have a great day. Or if you're really a Chiefs fan right now, you hope they win the Broncos game, but you hope they win the Super Bowl, right? Or if you are wrestling at school as a student, you may say to your classmates, I hope I get an A in this English class. Or in your workplace, as year end comes around and your company has had a good year, you look at your colleague and you say, I hope we get a year end bonus. See, we often use hope in this way as some desirable outcome we wish for, either for ourselves or for others. And of course, this is not a bad thing. But does this kind of hoping for something put us on the path to true happiness? In our text this morning, we are going to discover a very important truth, and that is that happiness in life is not primarily something we hope for, but someone to hope in. That true hope is found not in favorable circumstances, but in a personal God who extends favor to us. You brought a Bible with you this morning. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. And if you have a paper piece, turn there, electronic piece, or listen carefully to this brilliant Hebrew poetry. The word psalm is not a common word we use today, is it? I can't remember the last time outside of church or the Bible I talked about a psalm. Psalm. 
In the original language of the Hebrew text, psalm means a song. So think of song. Psalm 33 is an ancient song of praise, about four to five, four thousand years old, easy. And it's an old song of praise that God's covenant people sang together as they worshiped God together. It was a Hebrew song that was built to last. It had repetition. In the original language, you hear it more, and rhyme. And it was designed to stick deeply in the hearts and minds of God's people. Psalm 33 is an exuberant song. It bursts forth, and it's built around three hopeful truths. And these are the three truths. This is the resonance throughout the whole song. This is the lyrics I want you to remember. God's word is true. God's plans are good. And God's love is constant. God's word is true. God's plans are good. And God's love is constant. This is the flow of the text. It begins with a preamble. And the preamble, from a literary standpoint, is an enthusiastic call to worship. The God we confidently put our hope in. Now, I want you to notice with me, as the psalm opens, you notice the exuberance of musical instruments that are helping the worshipers praise God with mind and heart. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Write melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The exuberant beginning of this psalm tells us something about the circumstantial place that God's covenant people are. Like many of us who come to corporate worship on Sunday morning, God's covenant people of old sometimes struggle. Been there? They struggle feeling upbeat and hopeful in life. They knew hope was a precious thing their heart longed for, but they also knew it was a fragile thing their heart often lost. Because life's disappointments and struggles, both on an individual level, a family level, a national level, threaten to extinguish their hope. And honestly, from a human vantage point, it often felt to them as God was often distant. That is, if he didn't care. It looked at times that God was not coming through for them. And that evil was triumphing in the world. And what they needed was a kickstart to praise God. Recently, I was at a Kansas City Chiefs game, and uh, at one point during the game, the opposing team was gaining significant momentum. You been there? And what was needed for the hometown crowd was a little dose of hope. So all of a sudden, blaring over the sound system in massive decibels was the Rolling Stones classic song, Start Me Up. You been there? The minute that song started to play, the whole stadium stood up and erupted with enthusiasm. This is verses 1 through 3. It is a startup moment. It's an exuberant call to praise. And right on the heels of it is the first hopeful truth in God. The first emphasis of the song lyrics is that God's word is true. Verse 4 signals a different direction in the song lyric. It's changing. The first three verses are a cause for prayer, or a call to praise, and now the writer wants God's people to experience causes for praise. Why praise? 
And in verses 4 through 9, the thematic emphasis you'll notice is God the powerful creator. You'll notice the repetition in the English, the phrase around the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. You see that? The word of the Lord is upright. And the idea here is God's word is completely trustworthy and reliable. Verses 6 and 9, the song lyrics unleash the unimaginable power of God's word. Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, their host. The psalmist is simply echoing Genesis chapter 1 in a poetic way. He's recounting a phrase of creation of the heavens and earth. If you've read Genesis 1, you know that in each day of creation it says, and God said, and it was so. So the psalmist is putting this in poetic verse. That's exactly what he's echoing. The power of divine speech in creation is once again heard, and it's heard again in verse 9. Look at that. For God spoke, and what? It came to be. Do you hear that? God said, and it was so. He commanded, and it stood firm. So underlying the lyrics of this song is an impeccable logic we must not miss. The logic is designed to stick in our hearts and minds, particularly when life is going tough, when circumstances seem overwhelming to us, when loneliness is excruciating. The big idea tucked in the lyrics is this. If God spoke heavens and earth into existence by his very word, then when God speaks in revelation of the scriptures, he has the capability to do anything he says, and he will do it. In other words, if we put our hope in the God who created everything, knowing nothing can thwart him, we can fully trust what he has said to us. In other words, what the writer is saying and what God's people are singing together over each other is God's word and his work are inseparable. God's word is always true. He's always true to his promises. He always does what he says he will do. What he's saying is we can put our hope in God and his unfailing word. Eugene Peterson does a brilliant job in the Old Testament paraphrasing this this verse in the paraphrase, the message. I commend it to you. And this is what he says. He says, for God's word is solid to the core. Everything he makes is sound inside and out. And what he is saying is you and I can put our hope in God because his words are absolutely and utterly true. What he has said in this book is absolutely and utterly true. This is not a hollow hope of some kind of naive optimism here that the writer is saying, nor is he telling us to put hope in our own relationships or our financial security or human government or political parties or leaders. He's saying, no, the true hope is bedrock in a relationship with a trustworthy God. True hope is not hoping for something, it's hoping in something, in someone. And let's be honest, hope is really ridiculous, isn't it? It's not only naive, it's stupid, unless it's placed in God. Unless our hope is placed in the one who spoke the universe into existence, we have no hope. Only sentimental wish dreams. God, word, hope has rock-solid confidence, not arrogance. The psalmist will affirm this again in many psalms, and in our Advent series, we're going to touch on this. Let me just give you a taste. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Then the psalmist is in a really bad place. He's in a really hurting place. He says, 
Out of the depths I have cried to you, O God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. But in your word, I hope. Isn't it amazing that John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, brings together the brilliance of this psalm in one of the stanzas? Do you recognize it? Part of John Newton's statement is he grasps what the psalmist is saying. And this, these are his words. You'll recognize it. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. John Newton grasped what the psalmist is saying here. Not only is our hope tethered to the fact that God's word is true, but also notice that God's plans are good. And this is the second truth of the psalm. Look at verses 10 through 17. The lyrics of the song now shift from focusing on God the creator to God as the sovereign sustainer of creation, that God is involved in creation. God is providentially at work in the world, your world, my world, our present world. He is moving the world to a good and ultimate end of justice and righteousness. He is moving history to its God-glorifying crescendo. And the psalm echoes that as it builds to its literary crescendo. Notice, if you would, here in the song, how the psalmist contrasts the puny plans of nations, do you see that, with the sovereign plan of God. Look at verses 10 through 11. Now notice, the Lord brings the counsel. This word counsel in Hebrew is plans. Probably a better translation is plans or understanding. His plans of the nations to nothing, to zilch. He frustrates, that's my English translation, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. The focus of the psalmist is saying God's plans are good. They are unfailing. Human plans will fail. Humans will fail you. Nations will fail you. Leaders will fail you. But God's plans will not. Many times God's plans and timing are hard for us to grasp, aren't they? It's really hard for us to understand sometimes. Isn't it true that sometimes the things in our lives, in your life, in my life, in our world, do not make sense from a finite perspective? We just can't figure it out. And we are not alone in that struggle. God's covenant people have always had that struggle. As they look through their eyes of finitude at the glory of God and the mess of the world, they're going, God, what are you doing? I don't get it. I don't get it. You been there? The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah needed to remind God's covenant people in a very dark time of their history when he says, God's plans for you are not for calamity, but for a future and a hope. Notice the phrase. The prophet Isaiah, at the time of Israel's history when Babylon is breathing down their necks, he says to them, God's ways are not your ways, neither is his timing your timing. This is important for us to understand about hope. Hope does not have it all figured out. Hope is in a person who does. When we are struggling to trust God in the midst of the most difficult life circumstances, we must remember the evil one's strategy, his primary strategy, is not to get us to question the power and omnipotence of God, but the goodness of God. When we look back at the creation story, the creation account of Adam and Eve and their sin. 
How is it that Satan gets them to rebel against God Almighty? He doesn't question God's omnipotent power. That was self-evident in all of creation. He questions God's goodness. And Satan insinuates that God is holding something back from them. That there is something more to hope for rather than someone truly good to hope in. And that is his slight hand of deception. Because when we hope for something and not hope in someone, our hope becomes betrayal. In his literary classic work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, in so many brilliant ways, has all this extraordinary dialogue that's so theologically rich. There's one section that is absolutely stunning, and maybe you remember this. It's one of the classic dialogues of C.S. Lewis. Edmund, Peter, Susan, Lucy are interacting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver as they prepare to meet the great lion, Aslan, who again, if you know, is the Christ figure. And here's how the interaction goes. Lucy asks, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. See, the God revealed to us in the Bible is the king of kings. He is unimaginably powerful and absolutely holy beyond anything we can imagine. He is never to be treated disrespectfully or trivially. But God is unimaginably good. His love is beyond our full comprehension. He longs to have a relationship with you and me. He wants you and me to be his tender beloved. He created you with intimacy in mind, and this is where your hope is found, in intimacy with him. Because God is good, his plans for us and his world are good. And even though, yes, we are broken and the present world is broken beyond imagination sometimes. And even though we find suffering, disappointment, loneliness, and heartache are often our painful companions, God's Word tells us they are not senseless or meaningless. God can take the, take the most horrendous injustice or suffering or, and bring an ultimate good out of it. Because God's Word is true and God's plan is good. His sovereign plan for each of us and the world he loves will ultimately prevail and is unimaginably good for his glory for all eternity. Apostle Paul emphasizes the goodness of God's plans. He writes to the church at Rome, and if you've been a part of the church or read the book of Romans, this verse should be a part of your life. And if not, wrap it around your heart. Paul says, and we know what? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In spite of what you may be facing and feeling this Christmas season, you can be truly hopeful when your hope is in God. Why? God's word is true. God's plans are good. But notice where this psalm goes, and that's God's love is constant. In verses 18 through the end of the song, you'll notice this rapturous joy. Our confident hope and God's attentive love engage in a kind of playful dance of joy. Do you see it? Those of you who love poetry can see it brilliantly. You see this dance of joy and love, a playful dance. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, the psalmist says, and those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. 
Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is rapturously glad, as the text, in him because we trust in his holy name. The idea is he makes us giddy with joy. We cannot help but dance in his love. So he says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be on us. Be on us. Even as we what? Hope in you. The song that began with this call to praise for hope diminished hearts concludes in a dance of joyful trust in God and a renewed burst of life giving hope to an entire congregation who comes before God with all their junk and all their heartaches and renews their focus. The word translated steadfast love we're going to see in our series over and over again. It's a main word in the Old Testament text. It surfaces many times in the Psalms and we're just going to touch on it this morning but more later. This important word connotes not only God's attentive care, the care that he knows every hair on our head, Jesus says, right? For his covenant people, but also his unwavering loyalty to them. Eugene Peterson summarizes and paraphrases this crescendo of Psalm 33 brilliantly. And here is the appeal that it ends. As God's people come and have renewed hope in someone, when Peterson writes, this is it. Love us, God. Love us, God. With all you've got, that's what we're depending on. For many of us, Christmas season is a time we are freshly reminded of the fragility of hope. Many of us this Christmas will struggle being hopeful. Christmas gatherings often remind us confront us, ambush us of past regret, painful losses, shattered dreams, broken relationships, and loved ones who are not with us anymore. Add to that life's pressing difficulties in the present, heartaches, distractions, failures. In the midst of all the mirth of happiness of the holiday seasons, Many of us, if we're honest, feel very lonely and hopeless. Against the backdrop of the lyrical Psalm 33, from 4,000 years ago, the God of history, the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of consummation beckons your heart this morning, my heart, to experience the hope our hearts so desperately long for. And the psalmist says, hope in God. His word is true. His plans are good. And his love is constant. His word is true. His plans are good. And his love is constant. So how can we be more sustained and buoyant with hopefulness in our lives this holiday season? Can I suggest two reflections for you this morning? First, get the right song in your head. Okay? Get the right song in your head. Think with me for a moment. Just a moment. What song has been playing and replaying in your head this week. It may be a good song, but is it the best song? Is it God's song of hope for you and me? What are the lyrics telling your heart? Are they reinforcing cynicism and hopelessness? Are they setting you up to hope for something rather than placing your hope in someone? How about playing the hope-filled words of the Psalms in your mind? That God's word is true, God's plans are good, and God's love is constant. 
This morning we have an Advent handout for you. Hopefully you picked it up on the way in. If you didn't, you can pick it up on the way out on a table. And we'd like for you to take it home with you. And we'd like to have you memorize the short sections of the psalms we're going to go through. We'd like you to put this song in your heart this Advent season. Perhaps one of the ways you can do that is begin in the morning, maybe at breakfast, early part of the morning, and review a section of the Psalms and put it in your heart. Maybe it's at the dinner table, and kids, you are great memorizers. I expect you to lead your family, okay? (laughs) What song will fill your heart this Christmas? Will it be the song of hope of the Psalms, of love, joy, and peace? Or will it be a song that will not sustain you? What lyrics are playing through your mind and heart? Because the songs we sing shape our hearts. Second thing is, I want to encourage you, and I hope you hear this not in any self-promotional way, is to make corporate worship a priority in your life. We must see that the Psalms, this particular Psalm, is not an individual praise. Yes, it can be used individually, but it's all centered in God's covenant people coming together to worship him. See, isn't it true? One of the things we tend to do when we're feeling down or struggling in life is we move toward isolation rather than toward community, don't we? Isn't that just the nature of it? What happens is that isolation puts us on a downward spiral of greater hopelessness. The gift of Christian community, the local church, is an accelerant of heartfelt hopefulness in our life. And what I've discovered is the buoyancy of our heart's hopefulness is closely connected to the exuberance of our corporate praise experience. In other words, a praiseful heart and a hopeful confidence go hand in hand. So in other words, practically, if you want to stay hopeful, be fully present at corporate worship. That's a big part of what this psalm is saying. Perhaps God's people of old understood something really important. Now, there have been many studies recently, one at the University of Virginia, many sociological studies, maybe you've seen the Wall Street Journal, other places, that have shown how regular attendance at worship services in a faith community lead to many good benefits. Better physical and mental and emotional health. Better marriages and more healthy family lives. One of the reasons I think this is the case is that there is this symbiotic relationship, this close relationship with corporate praise and our individual hopefulness in life. When we engage in corporate praise, we are interjected with renewed hope. Our eyes open up again to God and move off our little small self. When we praise God, we not only honor God as he deserves to be honored, we bring hope to our hearts and to those around us. Isn't it true there are times when we simply cannot sing these words for a while as we come into worship? And isn't it true we need someone sitting near us to sing these songs over us? When we are feeling rather hopeless and joyless and peaceless. It is not surprising, given the Psalms of the Old Testament, 150 of them, that the New Testament writer of Hebrews encourages first century believers in Jesus Christ not to forsake assembling together. That means don't miss out on corporate worship. 
The corporate worship not only honors God, it nourishes and sustains each one of us. So at Christ's community, we believe that corporate worship is important to do together in a multi-generational way. So for your kids, I don't always get to talk to you. Kids, we want you here. We want you to join us. Adults and seniors, we want you too. Your very presence here, whether you are young, older, or in the middle, is a beacon of hope to others around you. In a dark world where hope is fragile. Not only do we all need fresh winds of hope in our souls, we need to encourage one another with hope as we remember God's faithfulness in the past and place our confidence in God's goodness in the present. The writer of Lamentations says it well, this we recall to mind, therefore we have hope. The Lord's loyal love, his tender love, are new every morning, great is his faithfulness. Common question we often ask this time of year is, will you be home for the holidays? I'm all for being home for the holidays. But the question I have for you this morning is not, will you be home for the holidays? Will you have hope for the holidays? Are you hoping for something or are you hoping in someone? We have much to hope for, of course, but we have more to hope in. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came not only to a Bethlehem manger, he went to a Roman cross and shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. It was martyred German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was so brilliant who observed these words. He said, Jesus died on the cross with the words of the psalmist on his lips. The song in Jesus' heart and mind as he gave his life for you and me were from the Psalms. The songs we sing shape us and shape the world. Psalms gave Jesus hope as he faced the most hopeless moment imaginable. Yet Jesus' hope was in someone. His hope was in the Heavenly Father, and that hope was unwavering. And because of his hope in the Father, his death and glorious resurrection from the dead, we can have hope, a living hope, Peter says, in Jesus, the resurrected one. It is a hope that will not disappoint you when all else will. It's just a matter of time. So will you place your complete trust, your complete confidence in Jesus this morning? It's not about what you do, it's what Jesus has done. Will you trust him fully? In this busy Christmas season, will you pay attention to the one who brings hope to the human heart? You will not be disappointed. Why? God's word is true. God's plans are good, and God's love is constant. Happiness in life is not primarily something to hope for, friends. Happiness in life is someone to hope in. True hope is not found in getting something, but in knowing someone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for words of hope in a time and in a world where hopelessness seems to be winning the day. May each one of us tether our hope to the living Christ, to the good news of the gospel, to the resurrection power of Christ. And may we find true and living hope. In Jesus' name we pray.